Hello everyone and welcome back to episode 25 of season 1 Reading with Grace, where we will be starting book 3 of the Unwanted series, Island of Fire. But first, a quick recap of the Unwanted's book 2, Island of Silence. Artemis recovered from the war between Quill and even a bunch of Quill's people have come to live in Artemis. Mr. Today started to slowly train Alex on how to be mage, even though Alex has no interest in the job. Aaron was kicked out of the university and he secretly moved into Haluki's old house. He began to talk to people who were unhappy about Quill and soon built a small following called the Restorers, designed to get rid of Artemis. Sam, Heed, Megan, and Lonnie went on an adventure in Claire's boat to a neighboring island but were kidnapped there and only Megan nearly escaped. Two unconscious kids on a raft landed on Artemis' shores and when they awoke the Artemians found they couldn't speak due to metal thorns around their necks. Megan also got these thorns from her adventure to the island. Mr. Today was killed by Aaron, and when he died, so did everything he created, including magic, Artemis, and all its creatures. At the end of the book, Alex found a last ciphered spell sent to him by Mr. Today that gave him some hope for the future of Artemis. Meanwhile, Sam, Heed, and Lonnie are still stuck on Warbler Island, unable to see or hear anything. That's the end of the summary. Enjoy book three of The Unwanted's, everyone! The Unwanted's Island of Fire, book three of the Unwanted series by Lisa McMahon. One, Death Farm. It was as if Artemis had never existed. In the weeks since the death of Marcus today, Alexander Stowe was often seen sitting on a rickety stool, staring out the window of the gray shack, clouding the glass with his breath. Sometimes he leaned his head of dark tangled curls, or pressed a dirty cheek against the pane to catch a few moments of sleep when he could stay awake no longer. Today was no different. He stared even now, but he wasn't seeing anything at all. In his hand, he gripped a piece of paper with a colorful border, which was beginning to smudge, and he never let it go, even though he'd memorized the words on it. It was his last message from Mr. Today, a cryptic, poetic spell that would fix all of Alex's problems, if only he could decipher the clues. He went over the words for the millionth time in his mind. Follow the dots as the traveling sun. Magnify focus every one. Stand enrobed where you first saw me. Utter an order repeat times three. The only thing Alex truly understood about the clue was the enrobed part. Mr. Today had been famous for his colorful robes, and Alex imagined there was some sort of hint of magic to the robes themselves. There must be if Alex had to wear one to make the world of Artemis come back. Alex had the good fortune of possessing the only robe in existence at this moment, the one Mr. Today had been wearing when Alex's wanted twin brother Aaron killed him. The robe was Alex's only symbol of hope in a time that could possibly be any darker. You should eat something, said a voice at Alex's shoulder. It was Henry Haluki, Lonnie's younger brother, and next to him stood the silent boy, a ring of thorns threaded through the skin around his neck. When Alex turned and focused his bleary eyes on the boys, Henry had out a good half-sized shell he'd been using as a small bowl. Alex smiled and took it. Thanks, he said, breathing in the faint smell of weak seafood broth. His empty stomach snarled, begging for it, but Alex hesitated. The unwanted were beginning to starve. He handed it back to Henry and shook his head. Give it to Meg, he said. No, wait, to Karina Fathom and her baby. They need it most. Alex swallowed hard and turned away, so he wouldn't be tempted to grab it back again. It would be a sign of acceptance to Karina, who was so mortified that her mother, Eva, had turned against Artemis that she couldn't bear to look Alex in the eye. Henry frowned, but he shuffled away obediently and left the shack carrying the shoop. The silent boy followed after him, both of them careful not to disturb any sleeping bodies on the floor. 
After a minute, Alex stood up, stretched his tired limbs, and left too. He walked around to the front of the shack, maneuvering over the still body of Jim, the winged tortoise, whose mosaic back sparkled in the sunshine. Until he reached Florence, frozen in full stride. Nimbly he climbed, using Florence's legs and arms as a ladder, and he swung his body up to the roof as if he'd done it dozens of times. He lifted a hand to shield his eyes and look west, with the direction of the two islands that dotted the ocean. Follow the dots as the traveling sun, he murmured. The dots have got to be the islands, but... He didn't finish the sentence because there were so many unknowns. The phrase didn't even make sense. And then the next line, magnify, focus, every one. How could Alex magnify and focus on the islands? He was stuck on this island. He couldn't get any closer. He had no binoculars. Sometimes when conditions were less favorable, he couldn't even see the more distant one. And every one? There were only two visible, though Simba had told him once that there were actually three in that direction. Mr. Today certainly would have said both if he meant only the two he could see, but the clue had said every one. Could Mr. Today have meant to include the island of Quill, too? And what about the rest of the chain that they couldn't see to the east? There were seven islands in all, with Quill in the center. Simber had said, Oh, Simber. A wave of grief flooded Alex. He closed his eyes for a moment. Nightmares had plagued him since Simber had plunged into the sea dead weight. All the rest of the creatures Mr. Dodea created in Artemis had ceased to be alive then, too, from the moment of the mage's death. The mansion and every wonderful thing in it was gone. Worse, two of Alex's best friends remained missing on Warbler Island, where the silence had come from, and Alex had no means by which to search for them. Alex shook his head. I don't know what to do, he whispered. Just then he heard a shout from the gate that led to Quill. He stood up on the roof to see what was happening. The shout had come from Henry, who laid sprawled on the dusty ground. Two other unwanteds ran off through the gate and disappeared into Quill, with the silent boy giving chase. Henry didn't move. Two. Broken Harmony Alex scrambled down to the ground and ran to see what had happened. By the time he got to Henry's side, Scene Ranger and the Silent Girl had arrived on the scene, and Megan Ranger ran from the water's edge. The Dorino sat near the gate, unmoving, and heaps like boulders. What happened? Alex demanded. Did you guys see anything? He looked from the silent girl to Megan to Scene, who knelt next to the boy. Henry rolled to his side, curled up and sucked in a few sharp breaths, as if he'd fallen hard and had the wind knocked out of him. After a minute, he waved Scene away and rose to his feet, dusting off his pants. There was a trickle of blood coming from his nose. He wiped it gingerly on his sleeve and scowled. They stole the broth, he said. His lip quivered for an instant and then it stopped. Crow ran after them. Scene raised an eyebrow as Megan took a closer look at Henry's injuries. Crow? The silent boy, Alex said. Henry named him. That is his name, Henry said. He showed me. He drew a bird in the sand, and I guessed it. I'm going after him, Alex said, finding it a little easier now to take charge than he had just a few short weeks ago. Scene, you want to get the story? Scene nodded. Alex started off toward the gate and then stopped, turned, and called back. We need to have a meeting. You, me, Meg, Henry, and the silence. See if you guys can find out if Mr. Appleblossom and Karina are available, too. They've had their hands full with the fish catchers the last few days. Got it, Sane said. Alex's best friend Megan, whose skin was mostly healed around the band of metal thorns on her neck, could only nod in response. Alex didn't have to go far before he saw Crow walking back toward the gate. He caught up with the boy and turned around walking with him. You okay, little guy? Alex asked. Crow nodded and punched his fist into his other palm. I know, Alex said, but I don't want you to fight. I shouldn't have sent you guys out in the open with food like that. People are mean when they get desperate. He pressed his hand into his own stomach, trying to batten down the hunger. 
He knew he didn't have much time before the little plot of land that had once been Artime became a battleground of infighting, and if that happened, the unwanted were doomed. Who was Alex trying to fool? If he didn't do something quick, they were already doomed. Crow kicked the dusty road with his bare foot as they turned in at the gate. We're going to have a meeting. I'd like you to be there, okay? The silent boy made a fist and tapped it to his chest. It was the new Artemian symbol of loyalty, which meant, I am with you. Alex smiled. Good. They made their way to the shack. Alex poked his head in and spied Henry sitting in the midst of dozens of others unwanteds, most of whom were trying to get their six-hour shift of sleep. Meet by Florence, Alex whispered, trying not to disturb the slumbering masses. The roof was the only private place around. The small team of unwanteds assembled one by one around Florence. It was a strange group, since three among them were unable to make a sound, and a fourth, Karina's baby boy, only spoke gibberish. Henry scrambled up Florence's limbs to the roof and reached down to take the baby. Alex, Megan, Crow, and the silent girl, and Karina all climbed up too, and they sat in the shade, for the moment, of Quill's forty-foot-tall stone wall. Alex looked at the silence. So, your name is really Crow? he asked the boy. The boy nodded. Alex smiled. Nice, he looked at the girl. I wish I knew your name, he said. She tilted her head and both she and Crow pointed upward. Alex frowned and looked up. Cloud? he guessed. Blue. Sunny? Star? Rain? The girl shook her head and pointed again. Karina and Henry looked on and then Henry piped up. Is it Sky? The silent girl nodded, her face breaking into a bright smile. Sky, Alex said, gazing at her. He liked the sound of that, and then he blushed and looked down to see if Seam was coming. On the ground, Seam appeared, along with Mr. Appleblossom. Um, Seam said, looking first at the man, who was one of the original unwanteds Mr. Today had saved, then glanced up at the roof. Is this going to be a problem, Siegfried? He asked the theater instructor. Oh my, Mr. Appleblossom murmured. What a predicament indeed. He gazed imploringly at Florence's ebony face. It's not the height that bothers me, of course. I'm nimble quite enough, though lacking speed. But think of when she wakes, severe remorse. Without our gentle mage to intercede, I may as well attempt a pummel horse. Instead, he drew back a few steps and gave Cena a measuring glance. Or vault, he murmured, suddenly thoughtful. At that, I may perchance succeed. He brought a finger to his chin, calculating the odds of running and vaulting to the roof using Cena's back, rather than disrespecting the enormous warrior trainer. She'll never know. We won't tell her, I promise, said Seen, his eyes widening in alarm when he realized what Mr. Appleblossom was considering. There's really no other way to get up there. I'm not nearly big enough to be used as a gymnastics apparatus. Besides, I'm sure Florence would be glad she helped us in her own way. The theater instructor shuddered, then set her shoulders and carefully climbed up the statue to the roof, where he settled next to the others. Seen followed. Well then, everyone, Alex began, and then he cleared his throat a little. It's seen things are beginning to crumble. Megan's eyes shot wide open. To put it bluntly, Sane said. How much water is left? Alex asked Sane. About a barrel and a half. Alex turned to Karina. And the fishing? They're catching a dozen or so a day, and some shellfish. Not enough to keep us all from starving, I'm afraid, no matter how much we make broth. Karina looked down at her hands. People have been fighting over it in the last few days. It's not good. I got attacked, Henry said. He still held baby Seth who was content for the moment to sit and gnaw on Henry's shirt collar. I was trying to bring some broth to you, Karina. Two guys came up to me and Crow. They grabbed the food and shoved me. He shifted the baby to his other leg. They took off and Crow chased them. I'm so sorry, Karina said. How could anybody do that to you? She looked at Crow. Did you see what they look like? Crow nodded. You'd be able to recognize them? The boy nodded again. Mr. Appleblossom shook his head. My guess is these thugs will not be back. 
The high priest guards are bribing Artime. We've lost a score so far. I'm keeping track. What boy would starve when facing a souffle? I blame them not for joining the wolf pack. Alex winced. Twenty gone? I guess it's not surprising. It won't be long before a true uprising, the Theodore teacher added in a quiet voice, completing Alex's couplet. Alex turned to look at the instructor, his stomach feelings pinched as Mr. Appleblossom's heat-flushed cheeks and sunburned forehead looked. I know, Mr. A, he said with a hint of desperation. I'm trying. Of course you are, my boy, I have no doubt. Mr. Appleblossom patted Alex's shoulder and gave him a sympathetic look. I hope the rest of us can help you out. I'm open to any suggestions. Alex pulled Mr. Today's note from his pocket and unfolded it. I know you've heard it before, but I'm going to read this all to you again, he said, looking around the group. If you think of anything that might help me solve these clues, please say it, no matter how silly it sounds. We're desperate. Here goes. Follow the dots as the traveling sun. Magnify, focus, every one. Stand and robe where you first saw me. Utter an order, repeat times three. Alex looked around at the group. Anyone? Skye, the silent girl, closed her eyes and frowned, a look of concentration on her face. Karina looked out across the water to the west. Do you still believe the dots are the islands? I don't know what else they could be, Alex said. Trees? We don't have any. Buildings? Ditto. The clue refers to the sun, and the sun sets over the islands we can see. It seems the most logical thing. But I don't get how you are supposed to magnify and focus on them when we can't see them all from here, Sane said. And we're stranded. Maybe we shouldn't have used the raft for firewood. Sky opened her eyes, sat straight up, and shook her head violently. She clutched her hands through her throat and fell back against the shingles, feigning death. Alex gave his newest friend a small smile, impressed with her theatrics, though now wasn't the time to mention that. She's right, he said. The water is really too rough out there for a raft, as Sky and Crow know. Besides, I'm not sure what an excursion would do for us. I wouldn't have the first idea of what to magnify and focus on once we got to the other islands. Even with the powerboat, it would take us days and days to stop at all of them. And talk about dangerous. We have no idea what kinds of people we face. He trailed off and couldn't help but glance at Megan's neck. She looked back at him, her sober gaze unwavering. How badly Alex wished he could fix her, but with no tools or magic or medical supplies, he didn't dare risk trying. He wondered if she'd ever be able to speak again, or sing. They discussed the clue at length, with the best suggestion coming from Mr. Appleblossom, who wondered aloud if one could see the other six islands in the chain from the top of the wall, and if so, perhaps there was a pattern to be found by viewing all of them at once. Okay, Alex said, but how do we get up there? I guess I'll get to work building a ladder, Sean said. Out of what? Henry asked, incredulous. We don't have any wood or metal, just a few barrels. Sean glanced down at Florence, his jaw set, and then turned his gaze to the multitude of frozen, once magical creatures that lined the side of the wall. Squirrelicorns, bebops, platypots, with more lying stiff and helpless, without Mr. Diddy's magic. With them, he said quietly. Stack them up like a staircase, I guess. Then he looked out over the sea, shaking his head. Without a solution to Mr. Diddy's clue, they'll never come to life again to know the difference. 3. The High Priest Aaron As High Priest Gunnar Haluki was tied up at the moment, and the new associate, High Priest Aaron Stowe, wasted no time shortening his official title to High Priest Aaron, it was just easier for the people of Quill that way, he declared, and it took much less time to say and write. Not that Aaron could write just yet, but soon. He'd been practicing with one of the scholars, Crete Sculpture, a middle-aged man with crinkly, paper-thin skin and the personality of a rock. Aaron sat at his desk with a rare piece of paper, scratching on it with an ancient stick of a pencil. As a young boy, he'd always wondered how the markings got on the paper. He never imagined it was a stick, 
It made him think of Alex drawing with that stick in the mud in the midst of a downpour in the backyard, and how he tried it too, and how he'd been caught, but his father had mistaken him for Alex. With his eyes, Aaron had pleaded with Alex to go along with it, to take the blame so Aaron wouldn't get an infraction. He looked at the pencil now, turning it in his hands, tracing the range with his finger, down to the dull whittle point. Remembering. It all seemed a very long time ago, but the look on betrayal of Alex's face. Aaron closed his eyes and tried to forget it, tried to stop the words that taunted him. The only reason you're sitting here now is because of him. Standing abruptly, Aaron dropped the pencil on his desk and strode to the window. An ugly Gorgaw statue wearing a pink bow around its horn rested on the ledge, very neatly staring up at the young high priest. Haluki had the strangest sense of decor, Aaron muttered. He gazed through the glass down to the long driveway, then turned his eyes back and traced his gaze along the ever-present, ever-boring wall. Secretary, Aaron said in a raised voice. Eva Fathom appeared in the doorway, her name and her indeed her identity, discarded once again. Find me a dozen strong necessaries and the most powerful tools we have. Giant hammers, sharp picks, shovels. My guards and I will meet them at the porticles at sunrise tomorrow. Of course, murmured Eva, but she smirked to herself. The rusty, broken-down gate to the palace could hardly be called a porticollis, but the new high priest was fond of making things sound important, especially when they weren't. Next, Aaron went on, send two more guards to Arta to infiltrate. Tell them not to fight, just to create some unrest and keep the grumbling going. It's been working. We've taken nearly two dozen so far, and we have put them right to work for our wanteds. Very good, Eva said. She folded her hands behind her back, waiting for more tasks. Aaron turned, looking his nose down at the woman. And give me an update on the whereabouts and activities of all the restorers. Is Luki dead yet? Where's Gondoliri? She's all but disappeared. Eva hadn't seen Gondoliri at all since the battle, but instinct nudged her not to admit that. Instead, she said, Many of the restorers are taking a rest after all their hard work, but Liam Healy and Bethesda de Gloria are still stationed at High Priest Luki's house. Aaron narrowed her eyes at her. I'm the High Priest's secretary. Eva pursed her lips and turned them into a thin-lipped smile. My apologies for the slip. I don't know what I'm to call him now. Call him... Oh, who cares? Just don't call him that. Eva nodded. Anything else? Aaron turned back to the window and caught a glimpse of the gargoyle again. He frowned at it. No, you may go. Without a sound, the old woman turned and left the office. Aaron picked up the gargoyle, held it away from himself as he walked, as if its hideousness might be contagious, and tossed it into a wooden box in the closet with the rest of Aluki's things. They'd melt the statue down to make weapons once Haluki was dead. 4. Gondoliri's Secret In the weeks since Gondoliri Rattrap had made skies above her little grey house open up and pour down rain, she barely gave a thought to the Artemians. She didn't think often about the new acting High Priest Aaron Stowe, either, though she'd been one of his prime supporters as he attempted to restore Quill to its former state of control. No, Gondoliri had been awfully scarce around Quill lately, and for good reason. She was very busy sitting at her kitchen table, thinking about her childhood. If she knew how to write, she'd be writing everything down as she remembered it, so she could free up her mind for more memories. But there were no pencils for ordinary people on Quill, and no knowledge of how to use them. So instead of writing, Gondoliri was thinking. Sometimes she napped in her chair in the heat of the day, and she began to dream for the first time in decades. It was frightening at first, since dreams were not allowed in Quill, but she was wise enough to realize no one would ever know unless she told them. Her dreams were filled with ideas she could never have imagined when awake. Dreams of fiery rivers of lava hurling down a jagged mountainside. Dreams of swirling dust, of gusting winds, of frigid ice and quaking earth. Dreams of destruction that both frightened and thrilled her. 
Yet when she awoke each day, she knew she had seen such things before, though none of the people of Quill ever had. None, that is, except for the three remaining droolers in the ancient sector, and Eva Fathom. Gondolieri needed time to think, she needed time to remember, and to see just how powerful her own bit of magic really was. And so it was that she decided to disappear from Quill by staying right where she was, in her chair, and not emerging until she had thought of every thought and dreamed every dream, and relearned every bit of magic she'd lost. And then when she was really good and ready, and when she was stronger and more powerful than any non-magical high priest, when she required no team of restorers to back her up, that's when she would make her move. Five. Caves. The breeze came, and the breeze went away. Day after day, Sam, Heat, and Lonnie huddled together, somewhere below ground on Warble Island, telling times by the breezes that swept over them, the gentle wake of the silent people bringing them daily food and water. As on the first day, the two friends remained blind, deaf, and mute, and they still had metal bands of thorns threaded through their skin of their necks, which had finally begun to heal. In the vastness of their dark days, they created a language with their fingers, tapping the other's palm or knee to spell out words. The letter A was one tap, B was two taps, and so on. It was a long process to spell anything of length, but they had plenty of time in which to do it. After a few days, having memorized the number of taps that corresponded to each letter, they were able to go more quickly, using a full palm slap to count for five. The twelfth letter of the alphabet L was two slaps, two taps. S, the nineteenth letter of the alphabet, was three slaps, four taps. A brush of the hand meant a space between words, and a closed fist made the speaker was finished. Sometimes they skipped a letter to save time and effort, if they thought the other would be able to figure out the word without it. Through this method, Lonnie recounted what she had seen with Sam Heat unconscious. She told Sam of their hope for Megan's escape, which lifted his spirits, although only a little bit. If it weren't for each other and their new language, they might have gone insane by now. Sometimes when they were tired of tapping and there was nothing left to say, they linked arms or clasped their fingers together as they fell asleep. Desperately afraid that they didn't stay in constant physical contact, one of them could one day wake up alone and have no idea what had happened to the other. A few times each day, Lonnie pulled Alex's drawing from her pocket and concentrated on his face and her mind and tried to send him a seek spell. It was the only spell she could think of that could help them. The first few times she sent it, she had great hope that Alex would be coming soon. But eventually, she wondered what was taking him so long. Alex knew about the spell. She knew he'd be able to recognize that it came from her, because when it reached him, it would explode into a fiery picture of the drawing he gave her, and he had only to go in the direction from which the going ball had come from. If Megan hadn't made it back to safely in Artemay, Lonnie shuddered at the thought of what might have happened to her friend. Then Alex would have the boat, but he could still ride Simber to get here, and she was certain Mr. Today could make another boat if he made the first one. She didn't understand why no one was coming for them. Several thoughts kept plaguing her, joining together and chiseling away at her. What if Alex and Mr. Today had already come, but couldn't find Lonnie and Sam Heed? What if they had come and been killed? What if Megan had made it to the boat, but couldn't find her way back to Artemay and become lost at sea? What if, what if, Alex just didn't care enough to come looking for them? Maybe magic doesn't work here, Sam Heed spelled out. There's no sound, so it could be barrier? He meant to spell barrier, but didn't realize his mistake until he got to the end of the word, but he was too tired to redo it. But Lonnie nodded her fist in Sam's hand. Maybe. She gave a deep, silent sigh and closed her eyes as a wave of hopelessness watched over her. She couldn't stand this much longer. She wasn't used to being so helpless. We've got to find a way out, she said daily. But each time they tried together to crawl around the perimeter of the cave looking for an exit, they couldn't find anything. They ended up most days in total frustration, with no voice to express it. And they'd been still and lost in thought for some time, sitting in the middle of the floor trying to waste away the endless darkness. Lonnie spelled, 
I'd give anything to see my family again. Then she clapped her palm to her mouth. She'd forgotten about how Samhede's family had treated him. She felt Samhede fizzle and slump to his back. He turned away from her, but he didn't let go of her hand, not even when the shuddering began. Six. From a Closet and Quill Claire Morning leaned her head against the shelf in her closet prison. Every joint in her body ached, for she'd been sitting there in the dark, tied up, for all but one hour of every day for the past several weeks. Liam and Bethesda allowed her thirty minutes in the morning and thirty minutes in the evening to move around. She was growing thin and weak, and her early hopes for escape had faded. The thing that kept her strong was the unwanteds. She knew, of course, that her beloved father, Mr. Deday, had been killed, and she knew that Artemy was gone. It was the thought of all the unwanted struggling to make sense of what had happened, struggling to survive without their magical world that kept Claire motivated to survive so that she could get back there and help them. She often heard the shuffling footsteps and low remote conversation between her two captors outside the closet. Now and then she was able to discern a word or two, but not enough to make sense of anything. And as much as she wanted to ask about the state of Quill and Artemy, she refused to speak to Liam or Bethesda. She closed her eyes and thought about her father, determined to remember all that he had done for the Unwanteds, so she could write everything down some day. Some day. The day dragged onward. She startled when she heard a commotion followed by the bang of a front door. There was silence once again. Very soon she heard soft footfalls coming toward her, but she knew it wasn't yet evening by the line of sunlight coming from the crack under the door. So whomever it was wasn't coming to let her out. When, to her surprise, the door opened. She squinted as the light poured in and heard her eyes. Claire, Liam said. She didn't look at him. He reached down and untied her wrist and loosened the gag from her mouth and let it fall so that it hung around her neck like a scarf. He handed her a cup of water. She took it and drank, frowning at her hands, which insisted on shaking around the cup. When she finished, he helped her to her feet and didn't let go of her arm until he was sure she was stable. Her legs prickled and burned as the blood rushed through them again, and a wave of black crossed in front of her eyes. She reached for the doorframe, willing herself not to black out. A moment later, the vision cleared, and she hardened a glance at her childhood friend. He looked disheveled and hadn't shaved in several days. His eyes were the same as they'd always been, surprisingly blue and intense. Bethesda stepped out, Liam said. He worked his jaws, if he might say more. Instead, he looked away. A wave of adrenaline pulsed through Claire, but she trained her eyes on the floor now, her face frozen. Could she escape? Why was he telling her this? I can't let you escape, he said in the softest voice. I've been sent to, well, you know where. He stepped away, shuffling his feet awkwardly, and then he hesitated to move the stove and plated a thick slice of toasted bread and a hunk of cheese. Here, he set it on the table, and then refilled her cup and set it next to the plate. Claire stared at the food and walked to the table. She didn't think it was a trick. She looked up at Liam, her brows knitting together, wondering. He looked back at her with softer eyes now, giving away the slightest hint of emotion. Perhaps there was a soul inside, somewhere. Why? Claire asked, her voice clotting on the word, leaving it stuck in her throat. Leon opened his lips as to speak, and then closed them and turned away. He went to the window and peered out, keeping an eye on her as well. Just hurry, he said. Claire gripped the back of the chair to hold herself steady, bite her lip, and glanced at the door. Don't, Liam said. He shook his head slightly, a warning. You won't make it. She swallowed hard, the food wavering in front of her. She knew Liam was right, but she wasn't strong enough. Maybe she could build up her strength again. She tugged on the chair, straining to slide it back, and then sat down. Thank you, she whispered. She ate. Liam watched out of the corner of his eye. When she finished, she asked, Is it all right if I stand? Sure, he said. Stay over there, though. She nodded and stretched her muscles carefully. From the back part of the house came a thump. Liam tensed immediately and then relaxed. Bethesda? Claire whispered, ready to hide. No. Claire's eyes widened. 
She had suspected something for days whenever she heard people moving about. Is someone else here? Liam looked at her. Liam, Claire said. Is it Gunnar? After a moment, Liam nodded so slightly that Claire almost didn't see it. A sigh escaped her. She closed her eyes and brought her hands to her face, shaking her head, wondering what would become of them all. The situation was beyond hope, and then she turned dejected and went back to her pantry cell. She sat on the floor, placing the gag back into her mouth, and waited for Liam to tie her up again.